0: We turn this morning to the book of Ruth, chapter 3, in a message that we've entitled God's Unfolding Purpose, God's Unfolding Purpose. Now, just to briefly review, we are right in the middle of the book of Ruth, and our message today will focus on the main event in this particular story, this account, coming into focus And we've alluded to this over the past two messages as we talked about Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech and Boaz and the kinsman-redeemer laws in Israel and how these set up a great king of Israel, David, coming into the world, but far greater than David, how it sets up the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world and how this particular... Story. this particular book of the Bible, points to and foreshadows the work of the Lord Jesus in redeeming us. And I just say that this is a story that has been on my mind because as we're going through everything we're going through in this country, God's people need to have their mind turned from everything in this world today, whether it be the violence, whether it be the concepts of justice or injustice, whether it be the political hot-button topics, an election coming up in November, and, if you haven't noticed, a coronavirus outbreak in our country. We're so bombarded with bad news. We need good news. We need gospel. And not only do we need gospel, I want you to focus on things in the Bible that you learn that you might not know that point towards your Savior just so you're in gulfing your mind in something not the trouble. And so that's, as we told you in message one in this series, that's our motivation for looking at this particular passage, that and we trust the burdening of the Holy Spirit. Just in review, a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi in chapter one left Bethlehem in Canaan's land, the promised land, to go to Moab. Now Moab, as you know, was a A pagan city-state. It was a very wicked place, but it was a very wealthy place. And so when a famine happened in the house of bread, Bethlehem, when a famine happened in Canaan's land where God had promised them to be and instructed them to live, these people leave because of the famine and they go to fill themselves and sustain themselves in the world. And as we pointed out, that's a great picture of In a sense, a backsliding child of God, where the sustenance of God's house of bread isn't good enough anymore, and so we turn to the world to find our purpose, to find our fulfillment, to find the satisfaction of our hungers, whatever they may be. Well, as they're there in Bethlehem, tragedy strikes. Elimelech dies. And then their two sons die, leaving a widow woman, Naomi, And her two daughters-in-law, now both of them widows, Naomi, which meant pleasant, has now told everyone that she is to be called Mara because she is now bitter and God has dealt bitterly with her. By the way, the Bible never refers to her as Mara. That's a telling lesson. The Bible always refers to her as Naomi, despite her saying, call her Mara. She tells her daughters-in-law, go home. Orpah goes home, back to her Family and her idolatrous roots, but Ruth says, Your God is my God, your people is my God, your home is my home. Wherever you go, I will be with you until death do us part. As we discussed last week, Ruth goes out to glean the field because in Israel there were laws that if you had a field, and everyone had a field in that day to sustain themselves. You are not to glean the corners of your field. If it lands on the ground, you leave it. You're not to totally glean it. So poor people and strangers can go through and harvest some of what you planted so they can survive. That's how a widow and a fatherless child would survive in that age. And so you have Naomi who sends Ruth out into a field to harvest what someone else had planted through God's law that he wrote of charity and I love to emphasize that when he gave that command, his follow-up on that is, I am the Lord your God. You don't have a choice. I've told you to do it. You better do it. Ruth goes out. Boaz takes note of her, of her person. He begins to take special care of her as he gives her extra handfuls of purpose, as we talked about last week, very beautiful poetic language. And he instructs the young men not to lay a finger on her, but to be kind to her. And so he cares for her. Ruth returns home to Naomi, tells Naomi, and Naomi finally, for the first time in the narrative since all the death and the carnage, she sees a glimmer of hope and her spirit begins to turn. Now in today's message, we want to look at chapter 3 and as we've entitled it, God's Unfolding Purpose, we want to look at God's providence begin to ripen. You know, the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, one of the phrases in that hymn is that His purposes ripen fast. And sometimes, the as we read in that hymn, the storm may look very violent, but the storm brings a nourishing rain that enables the food to grow. I, I thought about that this morning as I woke up. I, I got up. Some of you people get up at daylight. I don't get up at daylight. I got up at thunder, which was in the 7 o'clock hour. And as the thunder sounding, I, the first thing I thought is, I have to let the dog in because she's 14 and scared of thunder. And bless her heart, I need to let her in. And I get up to let the dog in. I'm listening to the thunder, and I just told Rachel, I said, thank God for the rain. Thank God for the rain. The storm cloud looked terrifying, but what did it bring that our yards and our fields and our rivers and our water supply needs? It brought the rain. And there's an irony in that. There's a mystery in that. But the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, does a great job in trying to express how some things in this world God intervenes and overrules in, even to bring His purposes to pass. And in this case of tragedy, we see that begin to unfold now and develop. God's overall purpose for Ruth and Naomi begin to... Ripen as it was, as it were, as we read through and study through chapter 3. Now, there are three things that I want you to look for. Number one, as we already said, God's purpose is ripening in the events. His purpose is beginning to develop in the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, things that he had in his will and his purpose. Number two, I want you to notice the mutual care all three of these people take for one another. The book of Ruth is an excellent example Of Christian charity it isn't the my way or the highway here with them it isn't what benefits me the most with them it's whatever that I can do that benefits you that's what I'm going to do and I believe that Christ would have us to follow those rules in our life if you read the Sermon on the Mount so much of it is devoted to if someone compels you to walk with them a mile go to if someone asks for your coat give them your shirt as well and to love even our enemies, and to do unto others the golden rule as we would have them do unto us. That's a paraphrase of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Whatever we would have men to do unto us, that's what we should do unto them. These three people at this moment in human history epitomize doing unto others the way we would have them do unto us. Ruth for honoring Naomi, Naomi for desiring to bless Ruth. And as you see what Naomi schemes, I'm going to call it Naomi's scheme in this chapter, we'll see that she had Ruth's best interest in mind. And then eventually Boaz desires to bless Ruth and Naomi. You have a group of people who are all doing things that Better the other ones around them that leads to this beautiful situation that we read in the book of Ruth. And in a day of fighting and animus and anger, what better of an example can we find of sinners being like their Savior Jesus than we can find here in the book of Ruth? It's a beautiful, beautiful book, and I hope that it's been a blessing for you to read and to hear expounded upon. And point number three that I want you to look for in this, as always, how does this lesson point to the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you see Christ in this example, in this account? And I believe next week, as we come to the conclusion of the book of Ruth, we'll see Christ very clearly in the actions of Boaz, and there are very important, what you might call, Christological reasons for this all to take place. Understand that while God doesn't Sovereignly micromanage and scheme and predestinate from the foundation of the world every event whatsoever that comes to pass. This is the lineage of Jesus. And so God has a special purpose, a redemptive purpose, a redemptive purpose in bringing these two people together because eventually through this union, even our Lord Jesus Christ will be brought into the world. It's an amazing thing to think about. So let's begin looking at the narrative of Ruth chapter 3. I gave you three things to look for. I'm going to break this chapter into three portions. Number one, Naomi's scheme, verses 1 through 5. Number two, Ruth's execution of Naomi's plan, verses 6 and 7. And then lastly, Boaz's gracious response in verses 8 through 18. Chapter 3 of Ruth and verse 1, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, the her there is Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it might be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, anoint thee, put thy raiment upon thee, And get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place, which means take note of it in your mind. It doesn't mean to set a big glowing sign above it. It means mark it, take note of it. When he lie, when he goes to bed, thou shalt go in and uncover his feet. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? And lay thee down and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And then Ruth still respectful and obedient to her mother-in-law, says, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. By the way, one of the common themes of the book of Ruth is submission. Submission. There are authorities in the world to whom we should submit to. And you find most of the problems in the world come when people don't submit to the authorities that they are to submit to. To God, to The authorities over us, when they are right and they're doing what they're supposed to do, we ought to obey God rather than man. But unless man is telling us to disobey God, we obey the government. And even to the church, we are to submit one to another in the church. There's an authority the church has that we are to submit to. And to not submit to it, what is the opposite of submission? Rebellion. Thank you. Rebellion. We don't want to be rebels in any sense. We don't want to be rebels. Naomi says to Ruth, go. Ruth says, all that thou sayest unto me, I will do. Now let's back up and look at some of the details of this narrative. First of all, Naomi is acting here in Ruth's best interest. She's acting in the interest of Ruth. Ruth, I love you. Can you imagine the love between this woman and her daughter-in-law? We often make jokes about... In-laws and mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law, and it's Father's Day. Let me say happy Father's Day to all the fathers here, but we're not here for Father's Day. We're here for Jesus. So you notice there's not a theme of Father's Day. Rachel said, you're preaching about women on Father's Day. I said, because I'm not preaching about Father's Day. I don't care about Father's Day. You can thank me you know, or say happy Father's Day later. Okay, I'm not worried about Father's Day until 12.05. In 12.05, I can worry about Father's Day. We can go get barbecue or hot wings or whatever. But right now it's the Lord. That's what we're concerned with. Um, these two women love each other. They love each other very much. And there's this serving relationship between them. Ruth says, I want to serve you. Naomi says, I want what is in your best interest. Rather than fighting each other like the proverbial mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship that you hear of so much, especially in comedies and fictions and movies and things such as that, these women are serving each other. In a Christian home, this ought to be the way our homes function. I heard a preacher one time say Adam was the most blessed man in the world because he was the only one who ever got married to a young woman without inheriting a mother-in-law. And I, I love my mother-in-law. We get along very well. And no irony in that at all. And she, she's very thankful for me for taking such good care of her helpless little girl, Rachel. And we, we get along very well. Rachel gets along with my parents probably better than I do, and if something happened to me and I were no longer here, she'd move back down there with them. And they would get along better than we ever got along. These women get along. They love each other. They're acting in their love for each other. It's the way it ought to be. It's the way it ought to be. Naomi is acting in love for Ruth. Shall I not seek rest for thee that it may be well with thee? Naomi is motivated by a love for Ruth and a desire for Ruth to have rest. And as we ended last week's message, Naomi rejoices when she realizes the man that has treated Ruth so kindly when Ruth comes back with all of the produce, all that she had harvested in Boaz's field. Naomi begins to express for Ruth, why this is such a blessing. Remember that Ruth wasn't raised in Israel. She doesn't know all of these laws. She hasn't grown up hearing the Pentateuch read, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible read on the Sabbath days or in the home. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6 says you'll read this to your children when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way. You want to put them on frontlets and hang the frontlets upon your face. And everywhere you go, you want to be talking about and thinking about the Word of God Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from Moab. She doesn't know the word. And so Naomi begins to tell her, this man is our near kinsman. Why is it important that he's a near kinsman? We're going to talk about that in a minute. And we'll explain and display for you some of the near kinsman laws from the Old Testament, the importance of a near kinsman redeemer. And so Naomi says, I want you to go tonight Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight by the threshing floor. How many of you in the past 24 hours have used the word winnoweth? What does the word winnoweth mean? Believe it or not, I didn't know what the word winnoweth means. Brother Hewlin probably knows what winnow means, to winnow something. What you do is you have a bunch of grain, and you want to separate the chaff from the weed, as it were. And so you take up all that you have into this grated Basket and you shake it, and when you do, you might blow on it. You might use the wind blowing on it. The chaff is light, and the chaff will be picked up by the wind as it falls. The chaff will be blown away, and the grain that you desire, being more dense, falls straight down. And so you have a a purged pile of the grain that you want in front of you on the ground, And the chaff is blown away. And by the way, you can take that and find an example of Christ because in the second coming, what does Christ do? He separates people, the wheat from the tares. He takes his children, he filters out those that are not, and he sends them to judgment. What would they do with chaff after it was filtered out? Burn it. They would often burn the chaff. And so Scripture gives us that example as a parable, a parable of the wheat and the tares. He, Jesus gives them examples that farmers and simple countrymen understand. And we say simple countrymen. Their lifestyle was far more complicated in some aspects than ours. If any of us had to go back to this agricultural society to survive, how long would we survive before we starve to death? You talk about riots in the streets. Imagine when the food runs out. Uh, we would be in trouble in a hurry if our country ran out of food. Winnowing is to separate the wheat and the chaff sometimes through the use of air. grain falls, the chaff is blown to the side. He winnoweth, you learned a word, memorize it. He winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Now she tells her, wash yourself. And by the way, they didn't take two showers a day. They didn't take two showers a day in this, Time in human history. And the water that they had wasn't chlorinated water, wasn't as clean as the water that we have. Imagine if you bathed in a lake or a pond. You know, we go to the lake and the pond, and we get out and we think, I need to go home and take a bath. That was the bath. That was the bath. She tells her, Wash yourself, An- anoint thee, put on some oil, some fragrance what we would say in the South is you want to get all decked out. you want to get on your best clothes, you want to put the perfume on, you want to fix your hair, brush your teeth, <laughs> take a bath, put your makeup on. put thy raiment upon thee, get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. Now Naomi is scheming. She's got a plan. she's playing chess. And she's getting the pawns lined up in the right spot. You're going to anoint yourself. You're going to bathe. You're going to put on nice clothes, nice as you have. You're going to go down there, but you're going to wait until he eats and drinks. Now, if you're a person who works outside all day, there's nothing like coming home, even if if you're working some other type of job and eating a big meal. Imagine it if you're burning calories all day and you come in. And you eat this big meal. Wait until he's eaten, but not only eaten, wait until he is done drinking. And by the way, he was not drinking water. He was not drinking milk. What was he drinking? What did they drink then? They drank wine. Now, does he cut it with something? Does he pour water into his wine? I don't know. And it doesn't say, it doesn't matter. But I do know this, that Naomi assumes that his heart is going to be merry. In fact, the narrative says that his heart was merry and that's going to put him in this jovial, cheerful spirit so that he is happy to oblige with the request that Ruth is going to make of him. Can you see the scheming mother-in-law here? Scheming mother-in-law. Deck yourself out, get your nicest, cleanest outfit on, get all cleaned up, go down there, but wait until he eats and wait until he's had his wine to drink. And doesn't mean he was a wine biver, but that's diet in that day. That is diet in that day. That's what you drank because water had parasites. And so people drank wine. It shall be when he lieth down, mark the place, take note of it. To mark something in the Bible, the word means to take note of. Where he lies down, spy on him. Spy on him. Know where he's sleeping. Go to him and uncover his feet. You might be thinking, what in the world is she doing? uncover his feet. There is nothing immodest or sinful that Ruth is going to do. What does she do? She uncovers his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're asleep and you're in the middle of the Middle East outside, it's not a place in a room where she sneaks through a house to get there. This is near the threshing floor. When you're asleep outside and the temperature drops and you're nice and comfy and you've got the blanket on you and somebody comes and they uncover you in the middle of the night, what are you going to do? You're going to wake up. Why? Because you're cold. So she conspires to the point and schemes to the point of even saying, uncover his feet so he wakes up in the middle of the night. Now, by the way, I had this conversation with Brother Curtis a couple of weeks ago when talking about trying to get The baby on a better nighttime sleeping schedule. How many of you veteran parents know what to do to try to keep your kid awake in the day so he sleeps or she sleeps at night? Keep him chilly. Keep him chilly. Kids, I just gave you free advice. Put it in your pocket. Put it in the bank. Remember that when you get married and have kids. If you want to keep your baby awake at day so you can sleep at night, praise God for sleeping at night when you have a baby. I got more than two hours in a row. Yay! You keep them cold... And they don't fall asleep. Keep them cold and they don't fall asleep. It's a strategy. She says, uncover his feet. Make him cool. So he wakes up and he takes notice of you. Ruth's execution of her plans, verses 6 and 7. She went down into the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. She did everything that Naomi told her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry because wine makes a heart merry and a full belly makes a heart merry. The man's had a hard day's labor. He had something to eat and he says, I'm feeling great. Imagine the endorphins are firing in his brain. It is a good time. He is happy. You fathers on Father's Day, if you go get you a bunch of hot wings tonight, you might, you might experience that same thing or whatever it is that you like to eat. If you want barbecue, if you want Mexican food, you know what it's like when you have a great meal and you just sit down and you say, that was good. That's the frame of mind that Boaz is in. Naomi knows that. Now, God is working in His providence here, but God so many times in His providence works through things that happen in the world. And so this is what's taking place. He ate, he drank, he was merry, he went down to lie at the end of a heap of corn, and she came softly. What does that mean? She sneaks up. There are other people here, servants, reapers, maidens. This man has great wealth, and he has great numbers of people that are employed by him, and... Ruth sneaks through. She came softly. Young folks, imagine on a cartoon when somebody's tiptoeing up. That seems to be the universal signal in a cartoon that you're sneaking up on somebody's to tiptoe. Ruth is tiptoeing up to Boaz. She uncovers his feet. She lies down. And she waits. Now it came to pass at midnight... By the way, I go to bed at midnight if I go to bed early. So she wouldn't have snuck up on me. What are you doing here? I'm still awake. But they don't have artificial light in that day outside of candles and fires. So when the sun goes down, guess what you do? You go to bed because you wake up at daylight and you do what? You work because that's life back then. You are awake in the day. You are asleep at night and that's simply life as they knew it. I went to bed this morning after one in the morning. Boaz at midnight is asleep. He wakes up. Look at verse 8. came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, and he turned himself. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. This scares him to death. Metaphorically speaking. He wakes up. And there's a woman. His feet are cold. He thinks, what in the world is going on? Now, it's interesting. You read commentaries about this, and reading John Gill's thoughts on this chapter this past week, he points out that the woman had no beard, which is how he knew it was a woman, and perhaps by her clothing. (laughs) You think about it, in that day, it's midnight. You can't flip on the light switch. What or who is at my feet? And he can see through the moonlight that it's it's a woman, no beard. Who art thou? You know when you're afraid when you wake up in the middle of the night and your heart is just beating at 140, 150 beats and you're just scared to death all of a sudden? This man awakes in terror. He's afraid. He's startled. Who are you? Who is at my feet? And she answered, I am Ruth, thy handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Now, Dr. Gill in his commentary pointed out that things that might seem immodest to one culture are not immodest to another culture. Sometimes modesty is cultural. Sometimes modesty is not cultural. To walk around showing too much of our physique or our body or our skin is immodest, and so Scripture calls on us, both male and female, to be modest in our apparel and not to have broided hair, which is to put gold all in your hair to look like you're a wealthy person, but to be modest and shamefaced. We're not to be braggadocious would be a word that you perhaps could use. This, to me, doesn't seem like something that I would prefer a woman to do. But it wasn't immodest in their culture. What she is asking him, as strange as it may seem to us, by saying, cover me with your skirt, is marry me. You see, that covering with a skirt is proverbial to her for take me as your bride and redeem me. Because he interprets it as such. And so she uncovers his feet And when he wakes up scared because his feet are uncovered, she says, cover me. And basically she's saying, take me into your household as your wife. Those of us that are old-fashioned in a Western sort of sense, you know, we we think that woman's not supposed to propose to the man, but that's just what happened there. How is it that common for us men folk to propose to women today. You take them somewhere really nice and expensive and you get down on one knee and you open a ring box and you say, will you marry me? I don't think any of us have ever gotten married because somebody asked us to put put your skirt over me. Perhaps that shows you that in that day and age they were so concerned with inappropriateness that you wouldn't be under the skirt of someone Unless you were married. I don't guess they shared a blanket watching a TV at night. They didn't have a TV, but. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. That word immediately triggers in his mind her intent. What is this response? I'm going to comment on the word kinsman in just a moment. He hears these words and he says, Blessed be thou of the Lord my daughter. He was old enough to be her father. For thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether rich or poor. It's just the way of the world that a young person marries, seeks to marry a person in their peer group, a person in their age group. And this man says that you you are so kind to me in that you have sought me as a husband instead of the young men, your peers, of your generation that are around you. Blessed art thou of the Lord, O daughter. The word Lord, there's all caps, meaning it's the name of Jehovah. You've showed more kindness in the latter end than in the beginning. And now, my daughter, fear not, for I will do to thee all that thou requirest. What is she talking about there? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The laws of redemption. I will redeem you. I will redeem you. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. (laughs) Who can find a virtuous woman? Proverbs 31. This Ruth is a virtuous woman. It's kind of interesting that Solomon would write the Proverbs about a virtuous woman when this virtuous woman is in the ancestry of Solomon because Solomon is the son of David. Ruth was a grandparent to him. All the people of my city doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. Her reputation had preceded her. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit there is a kinsman nearer than I, That's not a doctrinal or theological point. What he's saying is there's one relative who's closer kin to your ex-husband, your deceased husband, I should say, than I am. And that husband or that kinsman had the right of redemption. "'Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman well,' Let him do the kinsman part, but if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee as the Lord liveth. Lie down until the morning. Now to give you the rest of this narrative before we talk in brief about the kinsman laws. She laid his feet until the morning and she arose up before one could know another. Now they're avoiding all appearance of impropriety here. We don't want to look like we're up to no good. We don't want to look like there's sin. We don't want there to be scandal. And so he says, lay here at my feet until the morning. They, There is no sin that takes place. She arose up before anyone could recognize another. And she said, he said, let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. He said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. She covered herself with the veil. She holds it out and he put six measures of barley and lays it on her, and she went into the city. And when she came unto her mother-in-law, Naomi is going to hear about the result of this scheme. Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done unto her. Giving his blessing, putting his skirt over her, accepting this proposal, giving her all the barley. She said, These six measures of barley gave he me For he said to me, go not empty into thy mother-in-law. Then said she, sit thou, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not be in rest until he have finished the thing this day. In other words, Naomi tells Ruth, don't go anywhere. Stay here. Don't go to him. Don't go to town. Don't mingle. Don't talk to people. You sit right here and you wait. This man Boaz will not rest until he has brought this to a resolution. Now, in chapter 4, that's what's going to happen, the resolution of this matter. And we're going to leave it hanging until next week, Lord willing, to talk about the actual redemption of Ruth. But I want to look now at all of the significance to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz in this concept of a kinsman. You notice that several times in this chapter, and in the previous chapter, you read the word kinsman. Now interestingly enough the first occurrence of kinsman in chapter 3 does not come from the word that we will study today a word that has great significance redemptively in the nation of Israel it simply had reference to someone who is related but as you come later on in this third chapter I am thy kinsman I am thy near kinsman verse 12 what Boaz says to Ruth this word for near kinsman is the word what we would call ga'al it's a hebrew word however in commentaries and history books it's usually spelled instead of g a a l it's g a apostrophe a l in history books it's spelled g o e l goel instead of ga'al goel why is this word special the word goel ga'al can mean a kinsman But it can also mean, and it is also translated multiple, multiple times as the word redeemer. And so we have in the history of Israel the laws of a goel, the work of a goel. He was unto her a goel over and over in histories and encyclopedic references. This concept of a goel is referenced. You can Google that, Israel Goel, G-O-E-L, and you'll find lots of references on that about a near kinsman redeemer. What does it mean to be a Goel, a redeemer? In ancient Israel, laws of redemption were very vast. You have to remember that a man's name continuing in the world was one of the most important parts of their culture and their society. And so, as it pertains to what he owned, as it pertained to him having children, and his name continuing, this was one of the most important things to them. This is why when someone was unable to have a child, which is a very sad thing today, you find women weeping and mourning That they were unable to have children. Think about Hannah, who was the mother of, can you say it? How many of you know? Samuel. She begs God and begs God and begs God, and Eli the priest sees her doing what? Outside the tabernacle, murmuring, mumbling, not murmuring, but mumbling under her breath, praying to God about the matter. And when God gives her that baby, what does she do? She devotes him to the Lord literally drops him off there. She dedicates him to the Lord. Think about some others who find themselves in this position in the Bible. You have the mother of John the Baptist. You have Abraham and Sarah. There's a very special relationship in the Word with a woman who couldn't have a child being blessed with divine providence to overcome that in bringing some of the greatest men of both Testaments into being. God opening the womb, as it were. This was one of the most important parts of their culture. And when it couldn't be, by reason of a man dying before he had children or by reason of either the man or the woman not being able to conceive for biological reasons, it was something that caused them great distress. In the book of Leviticus, let me just share with you a few different things that could be redeemed by a goel, by a gaal, by a redeemer, a near-kinsman redeemer. First of all, property. Leviticus 27 verses 9 through 25 give us laws on the redemption of property. If a beast whereof men bring an offering to the Lord, here, beasts being exchanged, things being offered, if he will at all redeem it, then he shall add the fifth part thereof unto the estimation. I'm not going to give you explanations of all of this, but here in Leviticus 25 you have laws of redemption of things such as beast. You have the year of Jubilee referred to here. If people couldn't have redemption, they were to be let go in the year of Jubilee. You have a field being redeemed in verse 19 or not being redeemed in verse 20. In Leviticus 25, you have persons being redeemed, verses 47 through 55. You can write that down. In Numbers chapter 25, you have where an avenger of death, is in the Hebrew language, in the original language, referred to as a goel. He had avenging rights that is used with the same word to describe it. It's kind of interesting, if someone murdered someone in Israel or was believed to have murdered them, then a kinsman, a near kinsman, a goel, had the right, unless the person who had murdered them was in a sanctuary city, Best thing that I know to call it, unless they were in one of those cities where vengeance could not be met, where people hid from an avenger, then a person had the right to go and avenge the death of a loved one. If somebody murders a family member, a near kinsman could go and take their life. And that was legal, that was lawful in that day. Now, there was to be proper justice, it wasn't anarchy and it wasn't vigilantism, but. That was a part of their law in that day. They were enabled to go unless a person was in one of these cities that was a protected place. The Goel could go and take vengeance upon the murderer of a relative. That's, again, Numbers chapter 35, 9 through 34. Why this applies to us in this lesson in Ruth and Boaz, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is the right of the near kinsman redeemer, the duty of a near kinsman redeemer. If brethren dwell together and one of them die, by brethren here he means brethren, like brothers, one of them dies and he has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger." her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And so if a brother dies and there were no children born to that union, The remaining brother was to take this woman as his own wife, and their firstborn child would bear the name of the deceased brother. Now, this is interesting, and it struck me as interesting today, because we make a big deal in today's time about DNA. Now, we, two Christmases ago, got my mother an Ancestry.com DNA test, and we found all kinds of relatives we never knew we had. I'm talking about my mother has a sister we never knew. We found cousins we didn't know. I even found that I had a grandparent that I didn't know. I mean, how's that for Merry Christmas? Everything you knew suddenly isn't true. DNA was not the determining factor in a man's life, his name rather, continuing in Israel. A brother could raise up an offspring for his deceased brother with the man's widow. And it was lawful that the man's name not disappear, not be put out of Israel. It's God's law in that day. This hits close to home for us because last year, right before all of this craziness in the world happened... In my family, my brother traveled across the world to China and adopted a little girl. And people make weird comments about adoption and and nonsensical comments about adoption almost. But that little girl is just as much the child of Josh and Rebecca Winslet as if she had been born of Josh and Rebecca Winslet. God's Word respects and recognizes adoption even to the extent of raising up seed to a deceased brother that his name be not put out in Israel. And that to me is amazing. I want you to understand that an adopted child is just as much a child as a biological child. In fact, in some cultures, you can disown a biological child and you cannot disown an adopted child. Family name means more than genetics. And if we know much about adoption, we fully understand this principle. Family lines are also important in the nation of Israel because it would be the country specifically the tribe of judah out of which the lord jesus would come into the world and so even above the individuals namesake continuing in jerusalem or in israel rather in judah god's purpose in these laws was so israel continues as a nation because it was out of israel that god would send his son Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. There they which testify of me. God's purpose in all of these laws is to point to Christ. Judah would maintain, Israel would maintain their family lines, even through these unusual measures, so that this nation and all of their houses would continue in the world because it would be out of this nation that Christ would be born. From this nation, Christ would come into the world and save a people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue. And so God has redemptive purposes in mind, even beyond the scope of redeeming Ruth, even to the sending of His Son into the world to redeem all of us from our sins, His people. When you read Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel... Do you notice some very interesting things in those two Gospels? You find genealogies of Jesus, and they're both different. One is Jesus' adopted father's genealogy. Joseph adopted Jesus. Joseph was Jesus' legal father, even though he was not his biological father. And because of that, Jesus has a right to the throne of David through Joseph. In Luke's gospel, we read of Mary's genealogy, Jesus' biological genealogy, Mary being a daughter of David. And so he has a right to the throne of David on both sides. From which land? From which town? From Bethlehem. See how important all of this is in the scheme of bringing Jesus into the world? This is an amazing story. And I use the word story as an account, as history. Now our concluding remarks today, this is a story of redemption. A goel is a near-kinsman what? Redeemer. Sometimes it translates redeemer, sometimes it translates near-kinsman It has reference to a near-kinsman redeemer. Redemption is a common theme throughout Scripture, and this is all going to culminate for us next week. Not only in the above context of property, Leviticus 27, persons, Leviticus 25, avengers of a murdered family member, Numbers 35, raising seed for deceased brethren, Deuteronomy 25, But even Israel was referred to as having been redeemed by God out of Egyptian bondage. Now what does the word redeem mean? It means to buy back. Israel was bought back from Egyptian bondage by the work of God as he sent Moses into Egypt, which foreshadows for us the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus as well. Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse... 8. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed. Past tense. Now there was an Israel of God that would be redeemed by Jesus on the cross. But the redemption of which Deuteronomy 22 is speaking is redemption from Egypt. They were redeemed, bought back out of Egypt. On the night before all of this began to take place, what happened all through Israel? They were to slay a lamb and apply its blood to the doorpost and the lintel. And God passed through and spared the firstborn of the nation of Israel. And it was after this Passover that Pharaoh said, It's enough depart from us. We see Christ all through Israel's story. Lay not innocent blood under the charge of this people that you have redeemed. That's a prayer in Deuteronomy 21. David refers to God as His Redeemer. Psalm 19. We'll just read these for you for the sake of time. Psalm 19, the last verse, verse 14, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 103 Verse 4, God forgives all thine iniquities, healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, redeemeth. Redemption Redeemed, God is our Redeemer. He's redeemed us from so many things. In the Old Testament, all of these redemptions point to one great, grand redemption, the redemption of God's people from sin through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you see that so clearly. This book of Ruth foreshadowing it and all of these laws of Israel foreshadowing it. Job chapter 19 verse 25, Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth and He shall stand on the earth in the latter days. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet I shall see Him in my flesh with my eyes. When my Redeemer redeems me, I'll see Him with my eyes. Job knew a thing about redemption. All of this and what we read next week points to the redemption that we have in Christ. And we close today with the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, verse 18, as silver and gold, you're not redeemed with money. There were redemptions that could be with money. If you take an item to the pawn shop and you pawn it, you can redeem it with money. If you get a title loan, you can redeem it with money. But you were not redeemed from your sins with silver and gold. Everybody in that day understood the concept of redemption. Anybody that's used a pawn shop understands the concept of redemption. But we were not redeemed from our sins with silver and gold. You were not redeemed with your vain conversation. Vain there doesn't mean egotistical. It means fruitless, pointless, useless, unsuccessful, received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who by Him do believe in God. How do you believe in God? You believe in God by Him, the Lamb that was slain for you. He gives you the ability to believe. God who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory that your faith and your hope might be in God who is your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and the encouragement that it gives us in this dark, dark time. Lord, we rejoice that your Savior, your Son, your chosen Messiah, that you appointed to save us even before the foundation of the world, came as our near kinsman, our elder brother, our husband, as we are his bride, has redeemed us, bought us back, not from Egypt not after the death of our loved one, but, Lord, He redeemed us from sin. He redeemed us from death. He bought us back from the master of sin in our lives that we might be His bride, His servant. We pray, Father, that we would have the disposition one towards another as these three, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. We pray, Father, that we would be as gracious and grateful and charitable and loving as they were And we pray, Father, that as we study this account together, everyone who hears this message would see Christ in this passage. We pray in Jesus' name.